If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 6 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. Here we find before us a psalm of the suffering Messiah, a Messiah who once vindicated pronouncement, pronounces judgment upon his foes. We'll read the psalm in its entirety, but I would like you to take particular notice of verse 8, as we will hear echoes of it in our Savior's own sermon uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Psalm chapter 6, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, the psalm of David. Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea the Lord accepts my prayer, and all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now turning with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, as so we give our attention this morning to verses 21 to 23 for the sermon text, uh, but uh, we'll begin reading in verse 15 for its broader context. Matthew chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 15, as our Savior warns us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is God's holy, inspired infallible and inerrant word. Let us go before the Lord now and pray that he blesses the reading, but especially the preaching of it. 
Our gracious God and Father, we do confess that on account of our own sinfulness, we could not properly understand those things your word so clearly teaches apart from the work of your Spirit. And so we pray that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning to convict us of our sin, uh, not to lead us uh, to a hopeless despair, but that in our despair we would turn to Christ and so find pardon in life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite things that I get to experience one of my favorite privileges uh, as a pastor is uh, getting to, with the other elders of this church, uh, conduct new membership interviews and professions of faith. Uh, It's a great joy to see uh, the Lord build His church here uh, in the valley, Uh, and it is a great joy, especially for those who had at one point not trusted in Christ, to come say, uh, I want to profess my faith publicly before the watching world that Jesus Christ is my only hope of salvation. One of my favorite things uh, during this interview process is uh, nearly without fail, except when I steal his thunder, Steve Hogan asks uh, that particular member being interviewed, if you were to die tonight, and stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God, and God were to ask you on what basis, or why should I ask you, on what basis uh, should I allow you to enter my heaven? My heaven. How would you respond? It is perhaps the most important question you will ever answer. I think it's a question many of us are familiar with. Uh, for those of us who uh, grew up in uh, circles in uh, the 80s with evangelism explosion, I remember my dad teaching evangelism explosion uh, at my church as a kid, and it was the question he asked me when I was six or seven years old. This is the, and it still sticks with me. It's the most important question you will ever be confronted with. Who do you say that Christ is? Why should God allow you into His heaven? Who is it that will enter the heavenly kingdom? What we find is that this is the very question matter our Savior addresses this morning. Here, as Jesus begins to conclude His Sermon on the Mount, you need to remember uh, this Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5-7 to seven, uh, in Matthew's Gospel is a representative sermon of the type of, of the sermon that Jesus would go preaching throughout the countryside. Remember Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus goes from town to town proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is the content of what such a gospel preaching looked like under the preaching ministry of our Savior. And here at the end of this sermon, Jesus fast forwards to that final day. And here he zooms in on a particular type of person who will stand before the judgment seat on that day as he addresses the hypocrite, the man who has deceived everyone, even himself, but not the Lord. And so this serves as a warning 
to all of us today to examine our own hearts that we would not be shocked and appalled as this particular class of person on the last day. There's two particular points I'd like for us to consider this morning. First, we'll consider the matter of admission. You see that here in verse 21 as we ask the question, who is it that will enter the kingdom of heaven? And then in verses 22 to 23, we'll consider the matter of rejection. Who is it that will be turned away? Two very simple points, admission and rejection. And the way in which you answer will determine the fate of your own soul with respect to eternity. Jesus begins here by making a very stark and shocking statement that not everyone who says and calls me Lord will in fact enter into the heavenly kingdom. Jesus now begins to speak of the day of the kingdom as it has finally arrived in all of its consummate glory. Uh, As we have considered over the past year, this is the sum and substance of the Old Testament uh, Testament message spoken of by uh, Moses and all of the prophets that the Lord himself has promised there to be a heavenly kingdom that will arrive and will bring to naught the kingdoms of this world. Here our Savior focuses on that final day where that kingdom is finally consummated, where death and sin are finally reckoned with once and for all, and where the wicked are judged and the righteous granted entrance into the kingdom. Here we are reminded in Jesus' sermon, the nature of this kingdom, that this is a kingdom unlike any other kingdom on earth. The church being the visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth is a kingdom not of this world. It is a kingdom, but it is not a kingdom like that of Russia or the United States or Germany or Britain. It is a kingdom of heavenly origination. It is a kingdom that stands immovable and unshakable when all the other kingdoms have been reduced to dust on that final day. And here we see on that final day the children of men standing before the king of this heavenly kingdom as he asks each and every person, why should I let you in? It's striking here as Jesus himself declares himself to be the one who grants entrance into the kingdom and the one who will refuse entrance into the kingdom. It all hinges upon Christ. He is the judge and arbitrator of men on that final day. So many in the world around us believe, uh, do not even believe that such a day will happen, and yet Scripture is replete with these many warnings that that day is actually coming. Even in the Old Testament, you read in the book of Genesis of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jesus himself says that that stands as, as a type of the final day to come, where there is in the book of Genesis an intrusion of that end-time judgment of which Sodom and Gomorrah is just a representation of what will befall the whole world on that line 
last day when the heaven and the earth of this present age will be consumed in unquenchable fire. And here we find that the one who stands as judge on that final day and grants entrance into the new heavens and new earth is not Moses. It is not Elijah. It is not Abraham or David. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a radical claim that Christ is making about himself, and yet it is one that we've seen replete through this whole sermon as Jesus presents himself as one greater than Moses. Even in, if you recall in chapter 5, Jesus in uh, 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 expositing the Ten Commandments, or at least samples of the Ten Commandments, will say, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not murder. But I say to you, the prophets of the Old Testament would say, thus says the Lord. Not once do we find it recorded Jesus saying, thus says the Lord. Rather, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus stands as someone with greater authority than any of the prophets of old. One who is, in fact, God himself. This is why, as we'll consider in a few weeks, we'll find the people's response as they're amazed, not simply at his teaching, but at his authority. Jesus declares himself to be the final arbiter, the judge of all mankind. And as the nations come and stand before him, we find that there are many who will have attested to Christ's lordship in this life who will be denied entrance on that final day. That is Jesus' particular focus. You notice Jesus really says nothing about the fate of the righteous here in this sermon. He will later when we look at the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 and elsewhere. But here Jesus focuses in a particular way because this has been the substance of his sermon to this point. Remember what Jesus says in chapter 5. What is it that God requires? God requires a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he goes on to describe the superficial righteousness that so many have practiced. Those who engage in theatrical religiosity, going through the motions, thinking that God is pleased with their bare profession of faith, and yet retain a heart that remains untouched by the gospel. Jesus says, not all who simply say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What is it that Jesus is looking for? Well, for that we see why this passage connects with the previous statement Jesus has already made, which in fact connects with the same message of John the Baptist, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Our Savior is not simply looking for a bare profession of faith. How many of us uh, treat a profession of faith or, or, or you know, um, growing up in certain circles, uh, the, the language of asking Jesus into your heart, which is not a bad way to describe it, but how many of us have treated it at one point or another as some type of magical incantation? Oh, I've prayed the sinner's prayer. Now I can go about living however I so well please. As if playing the game of Monopoly, you got your get-out-of-jail-free card. Fire insurance. 
It's the same problem that Jeremiah confronted uh, uh, the nation of Israel in his own day, as so many of the nation, so many people in the nation would say, ah, the temple, the temple, the temple. Don't we do all these things? Isaiah going to the people saying, oh, look at all the sacrifices we partake of. And the Lord says, your sacrifices are burdensome to me. I am sick of them. The people honor your, uh, my people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, we're not. This isn't like Islam, which the uh, the, the, the 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 Muslim creed. Uh, simply, if you simply recite it, it's believed by many Muslims that that that, that is good enough to to enter into uh, the, the gates of heaven and the world of Islam. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. A bare profession will not do it. Again, Jesus is not talking about justification by works. But he is talking about there is a judgment we might say according to works, as our confession puts it. Where your works are not the basis of your salvation, but That faith which alone saves you is a faith that is never alone. It is a fruitful confession, a profession that accords with godliness. Again, our Savior's concern in this sermon is God's righteousness requirement. The thing that Jesus keeps getting at with the Pharisees is not that they have set the bar too high is that the Pharisees have set the bar too low. They have imposed new rules and regulations that don't do you a lick of good. What matters is God's righteous requirement. Here, Jesus continues to warn against hypocrisy and deception, even the matter of self-deception. And here we find that the subject of Christ's own illustration here is a class of men who are utterly shocked and dismayed on the last day. I mean, you can can feel the the trembling in their their voice on the judgment. They said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? There seems to be an honest surprise here among men who had grown comfortable thinking that they had nothing to worry about. And here in verses 22 and 23, Jesus focuses on the nature of that rejection. Look at the people who, this this class of person and the confession they make. On the surface, everything seems to check out. They've called Christ Lord. And so we ask, what is the matter? I think we're reminded of Jesus' own Uh, discussion with the disciples later on in Matthew's gospel. It's actually the hinge upon which the gospel of Mark turns. Or in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the question to his disciples, "Who, who who do all the people say that I am? Notice that the responses aren't necessarily bad things. You're a great prophet, a good teacher. I remember uh, when I was in college, this is shortly after uh, 9-11, there was at the university I attended a, uh, a massive kind of interfaith, kind of student uh, debate uh, uh, between 
Christianity, and Islam over the question of who is Jesus. And they had two guest speakers come, uh, and they had rented out this massive facility. Hundreds of people came to this thing I had attended uh, to see what it was. You're thinking, man, here's a, a state university wanting to talk about the most important question, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? And they had two men speak that night. One was a local Muslim imam. The other was a Presbyterian minister. Presbyterian minister gets up and he goes, well, we're not even sure if Jesus was born of a virgin. He may have existed, may not have. Resurrection, who knows if it truly happened. He begins to talk about alleged sources behind the Gospels, this alleged Q source. He says, but we can all agree on this, that the teachings of Jesus are important. He all commands us to be good people, and that is what unites us here together. Then the Muslim imam gets up, and he says, of course Jesus was born of a virgin. You know how I know? Because the Bible says so. Of course Jesus was a prophet. You know how I know? Because the Bible says so. And he begins to rebuke this Presbyterian minister for denying what the Bible had said. And it was a really shocking thing. Because what you see is that both of them give different answers. And yet both are insufficient. The Presbyterian minister gives an answer that is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, pagan in its origin. And then you hear a Muslim scholar who holds Jesus in greater esteem as a prophet then this Presbyterian minister holds Christ in being the Son of God. And yet, even the profession of that Muslim imam is insufficient. Christ is a prophet, perhaps even the greatest, maybe second greatest prophet in his eyes. Jesus asks the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, who do the men say that? And they say, you're a prophet. It's a good answer. What, what office does Christ hold as our Redeemer? Threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. It is a good answer, and yet it is still insufficient in laying claim upon who Christ truly is in all of his saving activity. And here we find a class of people who have held Jesus in one respect in high regard, though not the highest regard that is due him. They've called him Lord. Not only that, not only have they given a confession that at least on the surface looks good, even if insufficient, on the surface their works seem to be good as well. There's a faithful proclamation as a herald of Christ, have we not prophesied in your name? They have performed signs and wonders by their own hands in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have even displayed supernatural triumphs over the forces of darkness and expelling the demons from their midst in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is so bad about that? 
Note that all that they claim to have done, look, we've called you Lord, and look at all that we have done. Three times this phrase is repeated. Have we not done or said these things in your name? On paper, this looks good. And yet, notice our Savior's response. Who are you? I never knew you. Not simply, I used to know you, but we had a falling out. Not that you once knew me, but you repudiated me. No, Jesus' response is, I I never knew you. Never. Exposing this particular individual as a phony from the very beginning. Again, isn't that the very thing that our Savior's been addressing in this sermon this entire time? The superficial righteousness. The practitioner of a theatrical religiosity. The wolf in sheep's clothing. Here, Jesus addresses the problem of the hypocrite. One who has not only deceived everyone around him, His deception is so good, he has deceived even himself. Again, here is one who is shocked at Jesus' response to him. Here is one who finds himself truly surprised and truly dismayed on the last day that he is barred from entering the heavenly kingdom forever. It fully accords with the type of warning that Jesus has given his hearers through the entirety of this sermon to those who have only clung to a superficial righteousness. Sure, you may not have committed adultery on paper, but you have let lust run rampant in your heart. You may not have murdered anyone, but you have a heart that is rife with anger. Sure, you may not have perjured in the civil courts, but you have a mouth that is full of gossip, slander, and lies. Your religion is for show. You give alms, you fast and pray for a particular purpose, to be seen by men. Not even realizing that earthly notoriety, as our Savior has already said, was your reward. And you had it in full. But now the judgment has come and you are left empty-handed. Jesus warns of the wolf in sheep's clothing and here of an individual who is so successful in his efforts to blend in with the flock that this individual has deceived even himself. And notice the basis Look at all that I have done. Have I not done this? Have I not done that? On what basis should I let you into my heaven? Well, look at everything that I have done. And the Lord says, okay, let's look at everything you have done. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You see what the problem is here? The individual 
has judged himself or herself according to faulty criteria, thinking that their reputation mattered more than repentance, thinking that earthly fame meant more than spiritual fruit. Here's an individual who has had a superficial, lackadaisical approach to the holiness of God that has now left them high and dry, and now it is time to pay the price. As Paul writes elsewhere, here's the person who is held to a form of godliness. The outer shell looks great, but they have denied its power. It is a tree that has failed to bear fruit, and it is a tree, therefore, with rotten, a rotten root, and is good for nothing, but be cast into the fire and used as kindling. Though claiming to have been subjects to Christ, they are judged to be the practitioners of lawlessness. As we consider this passage... And I believe Jesus speaks in a way that is intended to rouse us from our slumber and our apathy and forces us to examine and re-examine and reassess our own hearts. Reminds us that works do matter. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of works and how do they matter? I think so many of us don't know what to do with the warning passages because they scare us. I mean, imagine driving down the road. Uh, you are uh, having a, a long cross-country trip. You've been on the road for 14 hours. It is snowing outside. It is 2 o'clock in the morning and you are tired. And you find yourself dozing off at the wheel. As you begin to doze, the car begins to cross uh, the lane, the double yellow lines. And of course, as you have now fallen asleep, you are unaware that a massive semi-truck is barreling in your direction. And unless somebody rouses you from your slumber you will die in a head-on collision because anybody knows that if you want to play tag with a semi-truck and a small car, you are the one who is going to lose. What does the semi-truck driver do? He wails on the horn. It wakes you up from your slumber. It scares you, and you swerve back into the proper lane, slowly evading certain death. That is what these warning passages are designed to do. Not to judge you and tell you that it is too too late. But to rouse you from your slumber and wake you from your apathy before it becomes too late. Do not be as the hypocrite who gave a bare profession was concerned with earthly fame and notoriety, and yet did not know and was not known by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here we find the major thrust of Christ's proclamation of the, the kingdom's arrival hinges on this very understanding. What is it that Jesus preaches? The very same thing that John the Baptist preached. What did John the Baptist preach? Well, the very same thing of which the prophets of old had spoken. And it is this, repent, for the kingdom of God is soon at hand. And now Christ says, repent, for the kingdom of God has arrived in his person and his work. Even as John the Baptist proclaimed, prepare the way of the coming of the Lord, here Jesus comes saying, I have arrived. And how will you fare on the last day? When you look back on your life and you ask, on what basis did you build your life and hope? Is it built on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it built on the shifting sand of so many other things and lesser glories? On what are you building your life? It's actually how Jesus concludes this sermon when we consider that next week. And yet this reminds us, though, that works are not the basis of our salvation. They do matter in a certain sense. Jesus keeps coming back to these very things. Are you bearing fruit unto godliness? If there is no fruit, it's a good litmus test on whether or not the heart has been redeemed by grace. Here is an individual who has relied more on the charismatic smells and bells of prophecies and miracles uh, as something upon which they could stand on for a sense of assurance. Rather than looking upon the spirit-wrought character of one who knows and is known by the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is Christ alone who is the sole mediator between God and man, that it is Christ alone who is the sole Savior of the world. Right? Anyone can call Christ Lord but the question is, does our life accord with that profession of godliness? Christ's warning is this, is the tree bearing good fruit under repentance? Or is there a wolf lurking underneath the wool? We return to that question then, who is it that will enter the kingdom of heaven? Christ has already given us that answer in verse 21. It is the one who practices, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why Paul writes elsewhere, do you not understand, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. It is not the sexually immoral. It is not the idolater. It is not the adulterer, the homosexual, the greedy, the drunkard, the verbally abusive. That is what is meant by reviler, the swindler. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. What a wake-up call that is as Christ, through his word, seeks to rouse us from our slumber, as he calls ourselves to examine ourselves before it is too late. In one sense, we have to say that works matter, but of what sort? Isn't that David's cry in Psalm 24? Who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? It is the one with clean hands and a pure heart. And yet, is that not the prophet's lament of Isaiah himself who says that all of our righteousness, even on our best days, are as filthy rags? Is, is Jesus here simply trying to say, work harder, get more good works in, 
than bad works, so on the last day, the scales can balance in your favor. And it's not what Jesus is saying at all. No, Jesus' final statement to the self-deceived is, I never knew you. What is the solution then? Solution is this, to know Christ, to heed his warning, and to respond in the manner that he has called us to respond. Who is it that will enter the kingdom? Jesus says here, just the one who does the will of my heavenly Father, one who works that work, he says elsewhere. But what is the work of God? Jesus says in John's gospel that this is the work of God that you believe, and that through believing you might find life in Christ's name. How is it that the sinner's heart is made pure? The Scripture tells us that if we confess our sins, we have a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To put our trust in Christ, who though the sole judge of the earth, and here is the good news, is also the sole Savior of the earth. That in trusting Him, in coming freely to Him, Him who died for our sins and was raised for our justification, that when we trust in Christ, He washes us clean and clothes us in His very righteousness. But the very righteousness that God requires is the righteousness God freely provides through trusting in His Son. That when we rest and receive on Christ, all of the benefits Christ has secured for his people are made ours, even as we simply rest and receive him in childlike faith. Even as the scriptures declare that God has made him who knew no sin, speaking of Christ, to become sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God in him that we might become the very righteousness of God. That by being counted righteous, he begins to work that righteousness in us. As he he takes out the bad root, so to speak, as he takes out that stony heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh, that heart of flesh bears fruit under repentance. The very fruit that the Lord is looking for, not as the basis of our entrance, but as the evidence that we are those who truly know Christ and have been known by Him. See, this passage is given as a warning for us that we might trust no longer in ourselves or in the faulty standards of righteousness that we erect to convince ourselves that we are good enough, but that like the tax collector in the temple, we would say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And know that we have a Savior who is fully willing and able to save, abundant to pardon, who gives us this great assurance that whoever turns to Him, whoever comes to Him, He will by no means cast or turn away. So come to Christ before it is too late. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and we pray that as Christ presents Himself uh, in our sights as the judge, 
that we would flee to Christ as our Savior, to deliver us from the final judgment. Strengthen us, we pray, for uh, anyone uh, beset with, uh, with fears or doubts of the goodness of Christ, let them hear of the goodness of Christ and lay hold of the promise that Christ has given, that Christ, who cannot lie, has said, Come to me, all you who labor and weary, are weary and heavy laden. Come, and I will give you rest. May we find rest in Christ this morning. Before it is too late, we ask in Christ's name.